listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thank you, Mike. In the unincorporated town of Bucksnort, Mississippi, in the middle of Tate County, two years into Abraham Lincoln's first term as president of the United States, Luke Nave Van Dalsam was born. And I feel quite confident none of you know his name. He wasn't a person who was particularly famous. But Luke was the father of Cordelia, who married a man named Solon, with whom she had Herbert, Herbert had a son by the same name who was the father of my father, Phil Odom, who is serving in his sixth term as the mayor of the Cornerstone Lobby. That's my dad. (laughs) Now, I don't know a ton about this ancestor of mine, Luke, but it feels really special to me just to know his name. I've seen a picture of his gravestone. I'm curious how many in this room, by show of hands, you you know the names and maybe a little bit about your great-grandparents. Okay, keep your hands up if you know about your great-great-grandparents. How about your great-great-great-grandparents? Okay, Bill, you're the big winner this morning. (laughs) What's amazing to me about this is Luke died in 1944. This is only 79 years ago, and this information about him, just to know his name, feels like such a treasured possession. It's information that is so scarce. Which makes it all the more remarkable that we're here today gathered in memory of one who walked the earth some 2,000 years ago, and frankly flabbergasting that so many of us would say that our lives have been profoundly shaped and are being profoundly shaped by the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we'd say that Jesus' life shapes our own is not because any of us can claim, you know, that we are his biological ancestors. No one on earth can claim that. He was a lifelong single man. It's that in the wisdom and the power of God, what happened to Jesus in the middle of history somehow transcends history. And it's reached all over the world. On every continent, you're going to find people who love Jesus. All throughout history, since his death and resurrection, people of every language, every ethnicity, of every socioeconomic class, there have been people who say that not only is he the Lord of their life, but they would even say he is the Lord and the King over all creation. What some have called the Christ event is that in and through Jesus of Nazareth, God fulfilled the promises that he made to the people of Israel through their patriarch, Abraham, to bless the whole world. And through his incarnation, his teaching, 
his healing, his casting out demons, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he has inaugurated a kingdom of grace and truth and power that is both really and truly here and not yet here in its fullness. And with the advent of the Holy Spirit, he's given birth to a new family called the church, which for all her warts, still the ones to whom he entrusted holy mysteries, the ones through whom he's accomplishing his purposes in the world. And we believe, as followers of Jesus, that one day this same Jesus will enter again into human history and we will see him. He'll return to judge and to heal the world to raise those who are asleep in Christ and to live among us forever. And trying to understand just how the Christ event changes the lives of those who come to trust in him is invited innumerable theories and explanations, just as uh, a vast work of art would invite different perspectives and interpretations. Some people use the language of ransom to describe what, it, what the cross really did, that it was as if humanity had been kidnapped by the devil, and Jesus in his death and resurrection has paid our ransom so that we can come back to the house of God the Father. Or some fancy people will use the language of Christus Victor, that Jesus has been victorious over the powers of the enemy set against the things of God. And in his death and resurrection, he has liberated us and brought us into his own kingdom. Some will know the language of penal substitutionary atonement. This means that Jesus got the punishment that humanity deserved for our rebellion. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And some people trying to get their heads around the death and the resurrection of Jesus use economic models to explain it, that it's as if we owed these enormous debts to God that we could never repay. And God in Jesus Christ has paid our debts, so it makes it a year of jubilee for us. But if all of these theories and explanations come to us from like what we could say is a right-brained perspective... There's another perspective that comes from the other hemisphere of the brain and also the other hemisphere of the world that's ancient and central to Orthodox Christian belief that you may have never heard before. My hope is that in hearing it today, it will refresh your love of Jesus and renew your appreciation for the beauty of the gospel. And it's caught up in this word, theosis. And 10 points to you if you can naturally work it into conversation at lunch after this today and see if anyone notices. An author told his brother that he was writing a book on theosis, and the brother said, theosis, can you die from that? And it's kind of the opposite. Theosis, translated really woodenly, means divinization or deification. It means becoming God, quite plainly. Now, some of you are guests today of your children or of your parents, and you heard now it's the church's Anglican, right? Like, is that a cult? And then I'm talking about becoming God, and you're like, I knew they shouldn't have gone to that church. I'm not drifting into heresy. This is not some kind of pantheistic blending of creation and creature. No, the idea of theosis is anchored in the words of the Apostle Peter who said that through Jesus we become participants or partakers of the divine nature. 
Or it's summarized in the words of a church father named Athanasius, writing in the late third century, who famously said, God was made man that man might be made God. Now, I am not saying, and Athanasius in the third century was not saying that humans literally become God or part of the Trinity. That is bona fide heresy. What I am saying and what Athanasius and Peter are saying is that God took on human nature in Jesus so that in Him humans can take on God's nature. Come at it from another angle. The, the good news is not only that we've been made right with God. That reflects every gospel presentation you've ever heard from the West. That's for the West, being made right with God, justification. This is our touchstone understanding of what the cross means. What the ancient church from the East is helping us to see is that in Christ, God has come to truly live in us. And that changes everything. It's not only that the judge has pardoned our offenses, but mysteriously and beyond my ability to explain it, that the judge has taken up residence on the inside of us, and that spirit of wisdom and judgment and discernment is now in us and with us. Sometimes this is summarized by the word union. By being brought into union with God through Jesus Christ, God's nature makes its home in our nature. Not fully. God is infinite. I am finite. God exists outside of me, though he still lives within me. And not exhaustively, there are communicable attributes of the nature of God. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You go on, the gifts of the Spirit, like wisdom. These are communicable natures, attributes of God's nature. God communicates them. He imparts them to me. But there are also incommunicable attributes of God's nature. God is omnipotent, and I am not. God is omniscient, and I am not. God is omnipresent, and I am not. God's nature is being made part of my nature, not fully, not exhaustively, but truly. And this is actually what we've just sung together. We said, to this I hold. My hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. If we meditate on this vision of union, of theosis, of participating in the divine nature, the, the union between Christ and the believer begins to explain some of the non-intuitive language that we read in the New Testament, like what Paul has just said to the Colossians. He said, since then you have been raised with Christ. We think, well, I wasn't there. How was I raised with Christ? Or in verse 3, he says, for you died with Jesus. It's like that you know, line from Monty Python, I'm not dead yet, I'm getting better. You know, I've done that joke four times. <laughs> no one has liked it at any service, <laughs> but I liked it. Paul talks about, thank you, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. He says, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that our body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with him, we believe that we will also live with him. It's not intuitive to us, but this is how New Testament authors think. Mysteriously, Jesus was crucified, and the believer can say, I was crucified with him. Jesus died, and the believer can say, I died with him. Jesus was raised, and the believer can say, I was raised with him. And it says, Jesus will appear. And cryptically, whatever that means, the believer can say, I will appear with him. Well, why and how? Because beyond my ability to explain it, I have come into union with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, there's a divinizing, deifying change at work in me. God's nature is at home in my nature. And because I am in Christ, what happened to him has happened and will happen to me. J.I. Packer said, in terms of rock-bottom reality, every believer has died and risen and now lives and reigns with Jesus and through Jesus. My life is wholly bound to his. How one with Christ am I? How one with Christ is the believer? As one as my foot is with my hand. As one as my knee is with my ear. As one as my spleen is with my nose. Unless you've had an organ transplant or plastic surgery, your parts are unmistakably yours. And in Christ, we are unmistakably His and He is unmistakably ours because we have been made part of the body of which He is the head. This is how Paul often talks about it in his epistles, that through faith in Jesus, we have been made a member, an organ, a body part of the body of Christ of which He is the head. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and we are part of that body. If you want to understand union, it's almost always best understood through these organic metaphors like members of a body. Jesus explained it using an agricultural image in John 15. This is how close the believer in Jesus are. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Where does the branch end and the vine begin? Where does the vine end and the branch begin? How one is the believer with Jesus as one as a branch is to its vine. Thomas Oden, who is not my pseudonym or a relative of mine, was commenting on how Martin Luther understood this idea of union with Christ. And he said, so interpenetrating is this union that Luther could say with confidence, I am one with Christ. His righteousness is mine. His victory is mine. His life is mine. But then he says, Christ in turn can also say of the believer, I am that sinner. His sins are mine. His death is mine. Why? Because he adheres to me and I to him. Politicians and people of influence uh, often try to associate themselves with people who can, you know, boost their credibility and try really hard not to be seen and especially not to take a, a picture with a person who's going to sully their reputation. But this is just not the way that Jesus relates to people. 
Jesus needs nothing from you or me, and we can take nothing from him. Consequently, Jesus is completely free of any form of social anxiety. And so Jesus can go wherever he wants, whenever he wants, hang out with whomever he wants. And in his incarnation, he did just that with all the liberty in the world, hanging out with prostitutes and with tax collectors. He hung out with the people in low places. They called him a drunk and a glutton. And I'll bet you he loved it when he was known as a friend of sinners. I bet, he thought, I bet that was a point of gratitude and pride for him. He said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. Why do you think I've come here? I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was known as the friend of sinners, but he wants to go beyond mere friendship with the believer. He wants to enter into union with us such that we could say, my life is wholly bound to his, and he could say to us in reply, and my life is wholly bound to yours. I'm not embarrassed to be associated with you. And this is how the scriptures want us to think. This is how the scriptures want us to operate. Not that God is distant or removed or some relic of ancient history. Instead, that God has taken up his residence in the life of the believer through union with them. And we're not meant to understand this just as a metaphor or flowery language. We're meant to understand it as our reality such that Paul could say, Jesus is your life. He said to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To the Galatians, he said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm struck and studying and thinking over, the, over recent weeks that every believer should be able to say with increasing confidence, Jesus Christ is my entire life. Not merely what I budget, you know, into a couple of Sunday mornings a year or a month. Not merely when crisis strikes and I need, you know, a handout from above. Not just when I see a sunset and I'm feeling particularly inspired. The believer and the disciple of Jesus should be able to say, to increasing measure, Jesus Christ is my entire life. With Paul, for me to live is Christ. And it's on this foundation of the believer's union with God through Jesus Christ that Paul makes this ethical appeal to the church in Colossae. I want you to hear these four verses again in their entirety. Since then, in view of the union we have with God and Jesus Christ, in view of the reality that we are participants in the divine nature, since you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Now, this doesn't mean don't care about what happens on earth. It means see what happens on earth from the perspective of Christ who reigns at the right hand of the Father. All the more it makes us a present help in time of need for the earth. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 
Ambrose of Milan, writing in the fourth century, said, Union with God and Christ like this has the effect of beautifying one's soul. It's like a bachelor who's lived on their own for a long time and there's dog hair piling up, you know, on the corners of the house and it smells kind of bad and then he gets married and everything just starts to smell better and there's greater (laughs) order and cohesiveness to this place of residence. So the indwelling of God through faith in Christ beautifies and orders and lifts and dignifies the human soul. There's actually a great example of this, uh, of a transformation that's happened in the life of a person in the last year. I won't ask by show of hands how many know this name or are familiar with this person, but there's a woman who's been known publicly as Black China. She's a, a rapper, she's a model, she was a body double for the rapper Nicki Minaj at one point. She was a reality star. At one point, she was married to a Kardashian. And she was one of the highest income earners on an adult website, earning literally hundreds of millions of dollars in just the last couple of years. And she shared in recent weeks that in May of last year, she was baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I really love that she waited a while to share it, that it could take. And over the last year, this woman has been systematically undoing the visible signs of her life before she knew Jesus. She had uh, injected into her face these face fillers to give it a certain shape, and she's had those uh, removed. She's been reversing and removing a lot of plastic surgeries that she's had, which she said she got because of insecurity about her body. At great financial cost to herself, she shut down her lucrative adult website, her page on it, which she said was degrading. She's gone through the process of getting sober. She had on her body an explicitly demonic tattoo, which she had removed over the course of time. She's being restored to her children. And the thing that just gets me so much about her story is she's returning to her birth name, Angela White. You see how she's moved in her life very consciously with God's help from darkness to light. With God's help, she's put to death this whole persona that she had created and she's been reborn as the person that God intended for her to be. And I find this kind of transformation to be beautiful. It's almost as if our sister in Christ has been reading the scriptures. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I want you to hear today and and to be reminded of the good news that God wants to enter into a very real union with you. Not merely forgiving you, but thank God for his forgiveness. But also joining his nature to our nature and in the process, beautifying it and ordering it and dignifying it. Maybe in our own ways, some of us have taken names on ourselves. 
We've created a, a persona that we present to the world to mask our inner need of him. Maybe you'd say that in reading the scriptures, you're aware that you have set your mind and your heart on earthly things. That like if someone were to write a story about your life, it's the story of someone who's trying to get a Volvo. It's the story of someone who's trying to get a cool house. It's the story of someone who's giving themselves to the pursuit of status or wealth accumulation. And Jesus warned us, loving these things chokes out our ability to respond to the gospel. Maybe, his life, maybe life has gone very, very differently than you'd hoped and you find yourself in the gutter in one way or another on your own. You've been trying to make a name for yourself. Maybe you've walked with Jesus, but somehow you have just missed the memo. When you think about God, God is an idea. God is in a building. God is in a book. And you've overlooked the reality that God wants to take up residence on the inside of you. And whether for the first time or for the first time with greater intention, you might say, Jesus, I want to give you my life. In increasing measure, I want to be able to say that you are my life. Would you conform my nature completely to yours? In this recognition that we're veering off course, that we're establishing ourselves as our own Lord and ruler of our lives, and living in that reality is part of the normal inhale-exhale of the Christian life, and it invites repentance of us. We become aware of those ways in which we're misaligned with God's ideals for us, the way that we were meant to be. Utterly free from shame, but in order to be liberated from it, we just tell the truth about ourselves. This is through repentance. To repent is to have a change of heart, turning from sinfully serving myself to serving God as I follow Jesus Christ. We need God's help to make this change. This is our exhale. But then we inhale through faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever you say about me, I want to be true of me, and I believe is. You say that I'm made righteous in your sight. Lord, help my mind and my heart to believe it, would you transform my thinking? Breathing in and breathing out, repenting and put our, putting our faith in Jesus liberates us from the, this posture of needing to make a name for ourselves, and we receive the name that our Heavenly Father gives us. You are my son, you are my daughter, with, that I love. With you, I am well pleased. We look to Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father, praying for us, pulling for us. Scriptures say Jesus was crucified and I was crucified with him. Jesus died and I died with him. Jesus was raised and I was raised with him. Jesus will appear and I will appear with him. What does this mean? When you read the New Testament and you want to get a good idea of what is Christian hope, what is it that we cling to, it's not us flying away from planet earth to some esoteric ethereal place called heaven. But if you read the last two chapters of the Bible, you see that heaven and earth come into union. And the, the favorite word of the New Testament to describe when Jesus comes back is when Jesus appears. It says that he will appear. When he comes, he will judge and heal the world. The dead in Christ will rise. Creation will be renewed and he'll live among us. But it says when he appears, we're going to appear with him in glory. Which tells us when there's that great day of unveiling, when, gosh, all of my life, I'm trying to know and follow Jesus. And some days you wake up in the morning and you just don't have much faith to pass around. Sometimes, some days you're like, 
Here we go again. I'm going to try to believe today. But someday in human history, we're finally going to see him who our hearts desire. What a day it'll be. And when we finally see him, there will be an unveiling for us as well. Can you even imagine a version of yourself that's free from sin or chronic sickness? Can you even imagine yourself free from the the psychological injury and trauma that's been absorbed into our bodies because of the things that have happened to us with how difficult it is just being a person in the world? Can you even imagine seeing yourself without those bags under your eyes from crying yourself to sleep? Can you imagine yourself free from the hang-ups of our personality that we've created to cope with the disappointments and the disheartening realities of life? Can you imagine a version of yourself fully liberated from the curse in our pre-fall glory? When he appears, we will appear with him. John, in his first epistle, said, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. Dear friends, now we are children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we will see him as he is. It's so very hard to be a person. The world's a really hard place to be. There's beauty, to be sure. There's goodness, to be sure. There's friendship, to be sure. But gosh, what a disheartening way to live. I want you to hear the good news today that God, who has been faithful in the past, is faithful now. He will be faithful forever. And there are things that we see in our world right now that are so very wrong, but this will not be tolerated forever. For the Lord himself shall come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. He's going to make things right. And this for us is anchored in this very objective reality that we proclaim Jesus Christ has died. Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask you to lift our heads today. I think of Mary in the garden, seeing you after your resurrection, and she confused you for the gardener. She couldn't bring her eyes up to look at you, and you said her name. Lord, would you say our name and lift our heads? Would you give us the grace today to trust in you and to continue to believe in you, to believe and trust in spite of the disappointments, in the face of those things that we cannot change? We grieve the things that are so deeply wrong in our world. And we long for the day, Jesus, when you make this kingdom that is not yet here, here in its fullness. Give us grit and perseverance and hope as we wait. 
Jesus, I pray for those who struggle to believe today that you'd plant a fresh seed of faith in their hearts. I pray that you will heal the sick. I pray that you'll forgive the sinner. I pray that you will encourage the person who's disheartened. As we come to the table, I pray that you pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. God, as we come to the table, we repent of the ways in which we've not trusted you and we've run from you and we put our faith in you, Jesus Christ, as the one who not only can make us right but live right in the middle of us. Well, Jesus, we love you and we honor you. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.